it. All right, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to have you open for the first time to Genesis. And I was just eager to get started in it, and that's why I was hyping up there. Genesis is where we're going to be in for the foreseeable future here as we, con- as we continue our journaling series, but this time in a new book. And uh, we have not before, at least not before tonight, done Genesis in this format. We've certainly been in Genesis in other times, uh, but tonight we're going to be in at this format as we jump in together to this book. And we'll be in just the first three chapters. And some have asked, even as you see, well, why not the whole book? Well... Because, not just because you'll be here a while, but you would be here for a while. But once you get into chapter 4 and following, you get into narrative forms. And you can't do narrative verse by verse as you do inductive like you can in chapters 1 through 3. So, or chapters 1 through 3. And you say, really, is that true? Yes, come to the hermeneutics class and we'll talk all about that. All right? uh, but we are in chapters 1, 2, and 3 because that does not yet get into the narrative format. Uh, and we look forward to doing those. And as you even kind of bracket off in your mind, verses 1 and 2, I want you to understand that within these two verses, just these two verses, is a universe of truth. In fact, within these two verses, we launch ourselves off into an enormous journey. Here in the beginning of the Bible, everything will rest upon the cornerstone that is laid in these first two verses. This is the record of the beginning of the universe. This is the record of the beginning of the heavens. This is the record of the beginning of the earth. This, for that matter, is the record of the beginning of time. Now, before we go all the way into the book of Genesis, help me out, the Bible students. What is the oldest book in the Bible? Job. Job. You guys are really quick and alert tonight. That's correct. And we have Genesis not... Job as the beginning of our Bibles. You ever wondered why that is? Like, why, why not put Job? Job's the oldest. You kind of imagined that would be the first. Why put Genesis first? It's beginning. It's the book of the beginnings. Of course you'd put the book of beginnings at the beginning. It only makes sense. Let's begin in the beginning with verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was out form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. One person has rightly said, no book ever opened with such a dramatic start as the book of Genesis. Everything else in the rest of the entire Bible is inseparably connected to these first two verses. As we do often, even in this journaling series, you'll find that we'll draw arrows and we'll say, you know, this verse goes to this and we'll connect the dots. You can almost draw an arrow from the verses 1 and 2 to everything else in the rest of the Bible. In fact, that's true even for those opening chapters. In Genesis 1 through 3, these opening chapters answer for us some ultimate ultimate questions. And uh, I've written down some, and maybe you can help me out. If you're a Bible student already and you've read through chapters 1, 2, and 3, here are some ultimate questions, and I'll, I'll give mine, and maybe you can flesh out some more. Who am I? That's certainly answered in these first two, three chapters. How did I get here? That's certainly there. Where did the world come from? That's in those chapters. How am I supposed to live? What is wrong with the world? What is wrong with me? What is evil? That's a difficult question. It's answered in these verses. 
For that matter, what is good? It's also answered. What is specifically our roles as a husband and a role as a wife? That's answered in these chapters. What is the family? That's answered in these chapters. What is gender? That's answered in these chapters. What is and who is the devil? Also answered. What's the most dangerous lie you can believe? That's answered. What's the most important truth you can know? That's answered. What is temptation? What is sin? What is the consequence of sin? Is there any hope after sin? What is death? What is life? What is on the other side after life when we meet death? There's all kinds of questions that are answered in these first few chapters, are there not? In fact, all these questions are the questions that the great philosophers down through the ages have wrestled to try to answer. But everything you need to know about the world, about God and Satan, about Christ, about salvation, about death, about life, about yourself, about your role, about who you are, it's all found in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And so we could rightly say, to be correct on these chapters is to build a rock upon which your understanding of everything else in life will be balanced upon, or, or framed upon, or founded upon. If you can know this correctly, you have laid a foundation for all the rest of biblical truth. To be incorrect in these verses and in these chapters is to build on sinking sand, quite frankly. What I'm saying, rather boldly, before we even pick apart the first two verses, is you cannot misinterpret these opening chapters and be able to correctly interpret anything else in the Bible. If you're wrong in these chapters, you will be wrong everywhere else. And so to understand chapter 1, 2, and 3 of Genesis is really to lay a foundation for your understanding as pertinent as the ultimate issues of life may be. To go through chapters 1 and 2 and 3 is really become and should be something that means you're laying a foundation. And from the get-go in verses 1 and 2, we almost have to put the pedal to the metal if we are ever going to think we can get through these two verses in one sitting. Because there's a lot there. There's a lot to unpack. And so as we do each time we come together, not every time, but often... I'll try to give you some headings that will hopefully uh, help you understand better, at least hang your hat on some truths. And, and here's heading number one. Number one, we could say the creation, number one, the creation of the universe. The creation of the universe. And that is a big heading. <laughs> That's a big heading. After all, it says right there in verse one of this book, it says, in the beginning. Referring to the beginning of the creation account. This is the beginning of everything. The beginning of time, the beginning of the universe. Before the beginning, there was nothing but God. <laughs> if you said nothing, you are half correct, and I hope you had time to finish that sentence with me. There is nothing, well, you are correct in one sense. There's nothing else but God. Before the beginning, there was no earth. Think about that. You know what else there was not? Time, what? No universe. There were no heavens. There was no dust. 
You could say there ain't no nothing is the best way to put it. I know if you put a double negative, it becomes a positive, so that was a triple negative, so it's still a negative, right? There is nothing there. But in the beginning, God, and immediately we come to this understanding that in the beginning, God created. The Bible begins by immediately introducing us to God. This becomes a really important factor for our understanding of how God deals with people and how God deals with you and I. Right away from the beginning of the Bible, the Bible begins with a presupposition. God is the initiator of everything. Everything is flowing from God. God is previous to everything. God is first and foremost all of human history will come from God in the beginning, God. There's a presupposition that starts right from the beginning with God. Now, students of God's word, as we're paying attention here, what name? Does anybody remember? <laughs> it's been a while since we did the names of God. Very good. That's right. He, she, he did not use Yahweh or Jehovah. That name will be frequently used in the Bible. Instead, this name is the name Elohim. The name Elohim. Anybody remember what the name Elohim means? That's right. She's got her notes in her Bible. That's not fair. <laughs> she said the mighty creator, covenant keeping God. And that is correct. We went through the names of God. And uh, I'm so thankful. Actually, I have in my office, if you want to come by, Diana did some cross stitching of the names of God that I did. And I have it framed and hung in my office of the names that we went through together. But we could really break down the name Elohim into its two parts that will help us give an understanding uh, to what's going on here. The name El, really just the name El there, really does mean God. That's what El is. When, when he adds Ohim to the Hebrew El, the understanding there is this, this creates a plural form. So if I were to actually just translate it into English, you would almost read it like you'd read it God's, but that's not what's being conveyed here. Why is it in the plural form? If we could break it down a little bit further, we could say El really quite literally means the mighty, all-powerful one is, is kind of how we would translate El for God. And Ohim really adds the all-powerful section to that. That's what the plurality is. In theology textbooks, the plural form Elohim is referred to as the majestic plural. When, when, he, puts the, when he puts the emphasis on the plural, he's saying he's all-powerful. Everything comes from him. Everything flows from him. Everything has its root in him. It's the majestic plural. He possesses all power. There is no power in the universe that did not first come from God. The majestic plural. Now, I subscribe to the majestic plural. Some disagree with me on this second point, but I still think there is an inference as well here, and I think you could come to that conclusion as well with me. Not only is it referring to the majesty of God, but the plurality also, I believe, speaks to something else about God. The triunity of God. The plurality of this word also speaks to the triunity of God. Was every member of the Trinity involved in creation? Yes. Yes. 
We have God the Father here in verse 1. We have later in verse 2, we can see that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. When we come over to the New Testament, we read in John 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Who is the Word in John 1, verse 1? Jesus, John 1, verse 3, All things came into being by Him, referring back to verse 1, Jesus being the Word. Every member of the Trinity was involved in creation. We have God in three parts. That's a, maybe when we do another Faith Bible Institute class, that would be a good one to just do on the triunity of our Godhead. This name for God, by the way, this particular name, Elohim, appears over 2,000 times in the Old Testament. That's a lot of uses of the name Elohim. And it goes over and over to let us know that God wants us to understand He is the Almighty God. He has unlimited power. He is supreme in his greatness. In the beginning, God. By the way, when it says in the beginning, right here, in the beginning, this word really can speak to and does speak to God's eternality in the beginning, God. God, who is the first cause of every subsequent cause that there will ever be. And I want you to notice the Bible does not begin with proofs of God's existence. Did you notice that? The Bible does not try to defend the existence of God. The Bible simply begins by declaring God. And the rest of the Bible will simply reaffirm the eternality of God. Who wrote Genesis? Moses. Moses also wrote one psalm. Did you know that? So some of you are saying, yeah, well, I don't have it on the screen. But maybe if you have your Bibles, you can go with me. And you can just check out real quickly to Psalm 90, the psalm of Moses. And in Psalm 90, verse 2, same author, same guy as the book of Genesis Notice what he says in verse 2 of Psalm 90. Again, speaking of the eternality of God, Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were born, and before you gave birth to the earth and to the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God was God. He's saying God remains God. God will forever be God. In the beginning, when it says beginning, it's referring us to this view of the eternality of God. Revelation 4, verse 8 is another reference to it. Moses didn't write that one. John did. It says, you are the Lord, the Almighty, who was and is and will forever be. But the beginning also refers to the eternality of God. And I'm going to have to, put all, I'm going to, have to zoom out so I can write all these down. That, that, word, that word beginning really does refer to, number one, the eternality of God, as we've already mentioned. But housed within that same word, the beginning, we also see the immutability of God. What does the immutability of God mean? Unchanging. Unchanging. He is what he is. He's always been that way. So the God of creation is the same now. And number three, not only does it refer to the eternality and the immutability of God, but it also refers to the omnipotence of God. When I say omnipotence, what does that refer to? All powerful. All of that 
are housed at the front doorstep of the Bible. It's like you crack open the, you know, you knock on the door and then you open the first page of Genesis and you're immediately head on with all of these truths right there in verse 1. In the beginning, God created. Now we come to the word created. Everything else, everything else will be created. God himself is uncreated. Now this is a Hebrew word that is used, this particular word, um, and I'll use a different color to kind of highlight it because I got a lot of notes already, but this particular word created only, uh, uh, I'm gonna do it again, only ever used, oh man, I'm running out of uh, good handwriting, not that I had good handwriting to begin with, all right? What I'm trying to say is it's only used of God. This word created is not used of any other man or any other being. It is only used of God. And it means, the word created means that God created out of nothing. That's what it's meaning. Created is saying, God in the beginning, out of nothing, he created. That's what it's saying. And notice what he created. He created first of all, he created first of all for mankind, or for himself rather, he created the heavens. We'll talk about it. He created first of all the heavens. When it says that God created the heavens, the word heavens, I want you to notice right away this word heavens is in the plural form. When it says it's in the plural form, what's that a reference to? It's referring to everything up there. That's what it's saying. Everything up there. Heavens. Literally, the word heavens could be translated, the, the, literally the word heavens could be translated heights. In the beginning, God created the heights, plural. Everything up there. And it's in the plural, so you could actually add it. You could say the height of heights. In the beginning, God created the height of of heights, and it includes all that is above the earth. What is everything that's above the earth? Heaven. <laughs> okay. What else? The stars, the sky, the planets, the solar system, and of course, heaven itself. Everything. And it says he created heaven, and I'm going to use a different color because I'm, I'm making too many notes tonight. I'm going to run out of colors. It, it, he created both heaven and earth. And I, I kind of connect those two together because this is Hebrew literature. And so what we'll find as we go through Genesis, as we'll find in other passages in the Old Testament, is you'll find the authors employing means of Hebrew poetry to make a point or figure of speech. And this is a figure of speech. When it says heaven and earth, this is a figure of speech called or known as mirism. We know what that is. Mirism is basically to say, and everything in between. That's what he's conveying. So he created the heights of heights and the lows of lows and everything in between. We would say, as our mirism, we would say from coast to coast. Right? And we're referring to everything in between. So when, he, when, when Moses, the author, says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth... What he's conveying in that first sentence 
is everything, everything, everything at all things were created. This would, there would be no beginning of the heavens and earth unless there was Elohim. Hebrews 11.3 verse says, By faith we understand that the worlds were formed by the word of God. If you believe in God, by the way, before we move any further to verse 2, if you believe in God, you have no problem with this opening verse. It makes sense. It's logic to you. It's how you hang your hat. It's what you hang your hat on. If you're shaky over the existence of God, you will find yourself tripping as you go through the front door of the Bible. R.C. Sproul put it this way. I'm going to read this quote and just kind of think about what he's saying. He, he actually says it good, in a good way. If anything exists now, he's kind of using a logical approach. If anything exists now, then there never could have been a time when there was nothing. Because the most fundamental axiom of all reason and all science and all philosophy is the maxim, and then he says it in Latin, ex nihilo nihil fit, which means out of nothing comes nothing. That's just the fundamental idea of science and philosophy. Out of nothing would come nothing. What I would say to you then is, it takes far more faith to be an atheist than to be a believer. Because all of the rules of science and all the rules of logic and all the rules of philosophy all conclude the same conclusion. You can't get something out of nothing. It doesn't exist that way. And so if there was nothing before creation, it would be impossible for creation to be. Because creation cannot create itself. To say that it does, or things create itself out of poof nothing, is a law of contradiction that even science itself cannot prove. The only rational, reasonable explanation for everything is God. Amen. Only God who is eternal, who pre-existed before everything. Only a God who is all-powerful, who can create out of nothing. Only God who is sovereign and can choose to create out of nothing. If you could use a math equation, let me give myself some space, but if you could use a, a math equation, basically what an atheist believes in math is this. Nothing times nothing equals, according to the atheist, everything. And that doesn't make sense. So I would argue it takes far more faith to have that math equation work for you. Try to hang your hat on that. No God equals nothing. Truth is, God is the only biblical, rational, reasonable explanation for the universe and existence. You're not the product of this world. You are not the product of society. For that matter, you are not the product of this church. You are the product of God. In the beginning, from coast to coast, God created everything. There is no bigger heading that we'll do in our journaling series than that first one there, the creation of the universe. But we'll still have to build off of it and try, we may, with number two. And number two, we'll say what the condition, the condition 
of the universe? What did it look like when God created it? After all, he says in verse 2, he says in verse 2, the earth was without. Now, out of all the planets and all the stars and all the solar systems, God narrowed his entire focus onto earth. All of his focus is on earth. Let me say, are there aliens? No. Why do you know that with such confidence? Because God focused his entire efforts on this, on this planet. God's focus was on earth. The earth was the object of the myopic vision of God. It would be upon this earth that he would cast down Satan. It would be upon this earth that he would send his son. It would be upon this earth he will send his son again. This would be where God would carry out his master plan for redemption and human history. But notice what earth looked like. It was without a couple things. It was without, first of all, it was without form. Notice it says, by the way, that the earth was. The earth was, meaning it was created originally this way. So you could almost kind of put a star there by was. This is, this is how it was created originally. It was this way. And it was without form. This word uh, form here that he uses uh, is meaning without it means without shape. Or you could say it, it, it means also uh, formless. Just to give you some sense I've got. It's really easy to follow these notes already, I can tell. Uh, just to give you some references, it's, it's used in other verses or other passages. For example, in Deuteronomy 32, the same word that's used here, Form, that same word is used to talk and, and is used to describe wasteland. So it's described. It's also used in Isaiah 70, or Isaiah, not 74, Isaiah 34, the very same word, translated here form, is, or without form, rather, those two words together. Without form is used in Isaiah 34 to describe a desolate place. And Isaiah 41, same exact word, Isaiah 41. It's used to describe an empty place. So when I say without form, what do you have in mind? Without shape, formless, wasteland, desolate, empty place. What am I describing? Nothing. <laughs> That's what I'm describing. I mean, there's a something, but there's nothing at the same time. This tells us God first and foremost made the earth, and when he did it was an uninhabited, unproductive, and without life. It would need to be formed. You, you could liken it this way. It, it would be like a, a potter getting out his pottery wheel and his tray and then throwing all the stuff on there, all the clay on there that he's going to create something out of. It's not created yet, but it's there. Or, or it would be maybe like an oil painter and he's got all of his lumps of different oil paints on his palette. And he's got an empty canvas in front of him. He's got all the stuff to make his painting. Don't trust me with that paint. But he can do it, right? It's this, this didn't, by the way, what I'm saying is, this without form didn't evolve by chance. 
the master sculpturist, master artist with great care, in the beginning, put everything he needed right there for creation. It was without form, and he says not only was it without form, but he adds that it was also void. When I say void, or rather when Moses says void, that word void means no life. There was no life there. No, it was barren. It was stark. It was empty. And there were things around it. There was darkness, it says. It was, there, there was darkness. Darkness fell over the face of the deep. God will not create light until what day? Right? You won't see it until verse 3. And God will not hang light-giving, light-bearing planets until verses 9 through 10. So at this point, the earth is just completely shapeless, formless, desolate, and dark. That's what we're talking about. And over the surface of the... And I want you to notice this one, because this is rather fascinating for careful students of God's word. Over the face of the deep... Now again, remember, this is Hebrew literature. And so there will be Hebrew forms of writing. And this is what we could say is a parallelism. So there is something in the verse that is parallel to, equal to, something else. The deep and the waters are actually together meant to form a parallelism. The deep and the waters form here a parallelism. And what he's talking about is it was the, the earth was submerged in water. Everything was totally engulfed in water. So you just had the best trick question for a Bible quiz. You could say, when was the first flood? And everyone will say Genesis 6, and they'll be wrong. Because <laughs> the first flood was Genesis 1. Isn't that interesting? It was submerged. It was totally submerged. So what did, and I'm going to give myself some room here, what, what did it look like? Well, there, there were really, the, when the, the planet was first formed, it looked like four things. It was deformed. We could say, and these aren't all alliterated original to me, but I enjoyed them, so I'll use them. It was deformed, it was desolate, it was dark, and it was drowned. <laughs> That's what it was. And this dark, desolate, deformed, drowned stuff <laughs> was what God used to create life. In that instant, he gave everything he needed for what he will do in the verses we'll look at in the next few weeks together, even out of this. So we see, number one, the creation of the universe. And we saw, number two, the, uh, the condition of the universe. But number three, notice, here comes the spirit. Notice the spirit. And this is interesting because we've, we've been kind of going over the Holy Spirit. And here we see that the Spirit of God was moving. Now, before we go any further, 
I want you to immediately recognize something that, that should stand out as a comforting truth right here in the opening verses of the Bible. God was not distant from his creation. From the beginning, he was right there. And specifically, we see the Trinitarian idea of the Godhead right away. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit were all involved in creation. And it says the Spirit was doing something, and specifically the Spirit was hovering. Some of your translations might say the Spirit was moving. So he was not standing still. It's not just that he was close. He, wasn't, he also wasn't just so close he was just, just standing there. He was hovering. What is the word hovering? Well, to give you an illustration, you can think in terms of um, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 32. And in Deuteronomy chapter 32, the word, the very same word here translated in the ESV as hovering, other times translated as moving, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, that very same word is used of an eagle who is hovering over her nest. So what are, we, what are we to picture here? The Holy Spirit, you could picture, is, is hovering over the nest of the earth waiting for it to hatch. Almost like a mother eagle waiting for her eaglets. Is that right? Baby eagles? All right, good. Got that. <coughs> to hatch, right? The Holy Spirit is hovering. And notice it's hovering and it specifically it says he, I should say, not it, he, the Holy Spirit, is hovering over the face of the waters. So what is the role, we're learning about the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. What is the role of the Holy Spirit for creation? He's over the face of the waters. He is, we could say, the Holy Superintendent. He's the supervisor. He's the overseer. God the Holy Spirit is the administrator of God the Father's great plan. That's what he's doing. He's hovering over the surface. And notice, again, the surface of the waters. As we've already mentioned, the earth's surface was a vast ocean. It was a global sea. And beneath the waters was the mass of materials that God would use to form everything else. And this is what it was. Now there's a lot just in two verses right there, but we have to come to a conclusion. So let me give you some conclusions and concluding points. Number one, I, I, I don't think we can miss this. Verse two is really a picture of your life. It really is. When you were created in your mother's womb, you too were in darkness, you were desolate, and you were drowning in your sin. That's who you were. And you needed something. If there's another point of application, it's this one. You need a new creation. And that's what Genesis 1 is all about. It's about the creation. And without God, the prime mover, none of this would ever come into fruition. This is God moving 
upon the face of the waters. In the beginning, again, in the beginning, God. There's the first absolute truth of the Bible. Before we move any further, there's an important side note, right? I think apologetics are okay. They can be used. But I do think we can overstate them if we find ourselves focused too much on them. I, 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 there, there's, there's a value to it, and it's important, but I, I don't really prefer, personally as a former youth pastor, giving apologetics to children and teenagers because they first need to understand the rudimentary basics. You have to give them a foundation before you start debating about foundations. The Bible starts with foundations. Now, there's, every child is different, and every parent needs to make that decision on when you feel like the foundations have been laid, and you can begin to introduce the debates about foundations. But foundations must first be laid. And the Bible begins with a very, very basic foundation, upon which every other text of Scripture really continues to build. You just don't find great chunks of Scripture debating the existence of God. God is God. In the beginning, God. And he created everything. That's what it's saying. When it says the heavens and the earth, that's what they're saying. Just Actually, just right there in verse 1 is all the truths packed into that. The earth, of course, without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. A lot of truth in two verses packed at the very front doorstep of the Word of God. That was a lot. That was a lot more notes than normal, too. And we didn't only have, didn't have a lot of space, so I'll try my best. Questions, comments? Rebecca? Um, there's so much about creation that just has always blown my mind, and yeah. I feel like this is a question I probably should have asked when I was like five years old. Sure. If God created the heavens, where was he prior to creating <laughs> the heavens? Because that's where he resides now. Yeah, that is a great question. And the answer, so her question was, if God created the heavens, which is where we know God to be residing now, where was he before he created the heavens? And the answer is, I don't know. <laughs> it's probably somewhere in the white spaces. No, I, I, we don't know. He, what, what we do know is other truths. He wasn't alone. And, and that's something that we, we need to, and maybe we can emphasize this on another point. God did not create everything to fill a void in himself that was missing. I think that's something that we arrogantly need to have a mindset about. Well, you know, he created the earth and us because we're his compadres. He, he must have been lonely. God was not lonely. Why was he not? How can we know that he was not lonely? He's a triune God. He's immutable. He's omnipotent. He's eternal. And he has no needs. <laughs> He wasn't lacking. The reason for his creation wasn't because he was lacking. The re Why then did God create? If it's not because he was lacking, he wasn't lacking, why did God create? That we might worship him. It's for his glory. Ultimately, that's the reason you and I and everything else exists. To just glorify God. That, after all, you hear the chasm, is the chief end of man, to glorify God and love him forever. Linda? I'm not being torn out. Sure. The water, does the water, like water? <laughs> we just don't, or we just don't 
Well, I, I would imagine it's, it, it's water. It's the same word when he says that he separates the waters and he puts the water. It's the same word. So I would imagine it's like water. Was it salt water or sea water? You know, I don't know. Is it all the fresh water? You know, you, you, we've got to bring in Dino Dave again to splice that out for us. But I'm just going to take it as H2O for me. Yeah. Good questions. Other questions? Paul. What you were saying about uh, having a foundation. Yeah. I heard Ken Ham say that's one of the problems with trying to preach to the 21st century. Mm -hmm. These people don't have any foundation. Yes, yes. And, and that's, if you heard him, he said Ken Ham was saying it's hard to preach to the 21st century. They don't have a foundation. And that's true. And what's interesting is when you read the, the, um, the, the apostles giving the gospel, they have really two different approaches. Right? At the day of Pentecost, they have this approach that just begins presuppositionally with God and a, and a general understanding to their crowd that they all shared. And then they build from the patriarchs to Christ, and they, they point to Christ from there. But then when Paul goes out and he ministers then to the Romans, and particularly when he's on Mars Hill, he, he begins with a different uh, set of rules. Instead of doing it a presuppositional approach, where he begins with the truth and then builds from there as if they have a shared commonality, he begins inductively and he uses their statuaries and this, this God, this unknown God, and then he begins to make proofs until inductively he comes to the conclusion at the end, which is very interesting. And so in a post-Christian culture, and, and, and there's some debate about whether or not we even live in a post-Christian culture. I know Ken Ham thinks he does. I don't know if we do yet. Uh, but if he did, then an inductive conversation makes much more sense to bring the gospel to them instead of a presuppositional because we may not have a shared commonality. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's an interesting conversation there. Yes? Okay, yeah, sure. I, I, so, no, it's fine. So, real quick. Uh, so, actually, kind of what we've been doing on Wednesday night is inductive. So, so deductive, um, deductive is when I have a truth, right, normally stated as a, a proposition, or we could say like a, a thesis. More people would be understanding of a thesis. A proposition is a speech. A thesis is written. So, like, if I write a paper down, Normally, let's say you have your paper and you have your introductory paragraph, right? Some of you guys are having English 101 flashbacks. And then in the, the last sentence of that first paragraph, you have your thesis. And then your thesis for your paper, every other paragraph that's built upon it is going to prove your thesis. So you stated your thesis at the very beginning, and then deductively, you will prove your thesis that you already stated. And at the end of your paper, you'll normally restate your thesis, right? An inductive approach does the opposite. So instead of giving you the propositional truth at the beginning, I will not give you the truth at the beginning. Instead, I will bring all of the arguments to the table, like everything, and lay them all on the table and discuss one by one every single argument that you can think of on that particular topic until at the very end, I finally give you the truth. Does that make sense? So, but no, it's very helpful. So, so when it comes to, back to Paul, because I, I find this very interesting too. I don't know if anybody else does, but I find it interesting. So when it comes to back to Paul's question, if I am teaching someone 
who has a Christian understanding, at least a general Christian understanding of who Jesus is, who the Bible is, what church is, just kind of a general understanding, I would be more willing to begin with a deductive truth claim. Even if they don't agree with my truth claim, and even in a deductive speech, you're not assuming that they agree with your thesis, that's why you have a speech later, you're gonna prove it to them, but they have an understanding of framework on which to hang their hat. So most preaching, at our church in particular, and most churches, will be deductive in nature. So when I come and I preach from the pulpit, I'll read from God's word, and next, actually this Sunday, it'd be a fun exercise if you can find my prop, proposition. I always have one, I always repeat it at least five times, all right, but different ways. So I'll read the text, and then I'll state the proposition, and then all my points will support the proposition. All right, that's normally how you build a sermon because I've read the text and now we have a framework of to hand our hats. But, and it's the hardest way to preach, and I wish I did a better job of it, inductive preaching is to read the text, give no conclusions, debate with the ideas of the text, and then come at the end to what the conclusion actually is. Now, if you or I were to study in an Eastern school of thought, um, in, in India or China, or even really in Christ's day in Israel, they would be inductive by nature. That's my brother-in-law is from India. His mind and his thinking is inductive. Uh, engineers love inductive truth because that's kind of how, that's what their job is all about. And he, by the way, is an engineer. But that's kind of their mindset. Uh, well, depending on the field of engineering. But then deductive teaching is what you and I as Americans are more commonly used to. We're used to the schoolhouse where someone's behind a lectern teaching you. That's deductive. Does everybody make sense? Anybody find that interesting? I don't know if anybody find that interesting. Thank you for that tangential topic there, but I, I find it very interesting. I, I wish I did more inductive than deductive, but admittedly, Inductive requires, and I've done it a few times, but it, uh, even here recently, but the inductive teaching requires about, in my experience, two times more prep work than deductive teaching. Um, the most recent inductive sermon I did was the second one in our series on the Holy Spirit. Um, and that was a hard one to do. Other questions? <laughs> yes, Brenda. Um, in the King James, it says, created the heaven mm -hmm. singular. I was going to bring that up and I, I failed to do that um, I don't know the King James is the only she said the King James is, it, it says he created the heaven and it's singular they're the only translation that does that definitely the root and by the way it's not as though the King James and the other modern translations are using a different manuscript you know that right when it comes to the New Testament, there is a debate over manuscript families and when it comes to different translations. But every English translation of the Bible uses the same manuscript family for the Old Testament. So translation debates are not Old Testament debates. So someone say, I prefer the King James, and that's fine, or I prefer the ESV, and that's fine, or I prefer the NASB, that's fine. You can have that conversation in the New Testament. It's not an Old Testament debate. It's all the same. Yes, Tom? The New King James has it as heaven. Yeah, there you go. Interesting. So if you just heard that, uh, the New King James has it in the plural. Uh, the King James has it in the singular. I don't know why. I, I, personally, I would believe that they're, 
incorrect in that. Because it is plural. It's very clearly plural in the Hebrew. Yes? I was just going to ask if the earth was formless, what was holding the water? If the earth was formless, what was holding the water? And I would say the spirit and, well, specifically God was holding everything together. As he still does today. That in the New Testament, he says he holds everything in its order. So whatever formless thing that was, right, God was holding it all together. And even to this day, that's what God is doing. He is holding everything together. But there's a form. It did not yet, I could say when, it, when we say the formlessness of the creation here in 1 and 2, it did not yet reflect the structured orderliness of the Godhead which now the creation is meant to point us back to. Like, I mean, even on the most microscopic level, and I'm, I'm not a scientist and I don't pretend to be, but I do find it fascinating when, when those who are scientists kind of get into all that. It's pretty cool to watch those who know what they're doing get into the really the smallest of details and say, well, man, just like a strand of DNA, like how intricately and perfectly designed that is. That's the form that wasn't there yet. So this formlessness does not yet reflect the formed orderliness of the Godhead that we will see being made true in the six days of creation. Other thoughts? These are good conversations. They're very fun. Well, we bit off a lot. You didn't think two verses could have that much truth, but there is a lot there. And I look forward to jumping with you back into verses. Well, I'll try to keep it at bite-sized chunks because I fear going too much ahead of ourselves uh, lest we get in over our heads. I mean, we just talked about drowning here in 1 and 2, and we don't want to drown. So uh, we'll try our best to make sure that we're going at a pace we can keep up with. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your word and for the time we can spend digging into the truths that are housed here at the front doorstep. And Lord, there's a lot of material that is still left unsaid even after we finish talking about it. And may we continue to meditate on the beauty of your creation and the...